Okay, so next week, we go, we're going to tackle this topic in our, in our series of being like Jesus, tackle the topic of evangelism. It's the one that always makes us really uncomfortable because it's the one where we think that this means you're going to hear about how you have to, every time you're on a plane, turn and talk about Jesus, maybe spend some time at Walmart handing out gospel tracts and telling people, can I tell you what my Savior did for me? All of these things that you know you've always heard, this is what evangelism is, I want to talk about that. What kind of evangelism are you called to? Am I called to? What does that look like? Especially in this culture today, what are the best ways for us to reach people with the truth of Jesus Christ? That is what we'll look at for next week. Uh, certainly you want to act like Jesus. You want to share the truth of Jesus. These are the two passages, 1 Peter chapter 2. And I know it's weird because you don't think in the Old Testament there's going to be evangelism. Jesus hadn't been here yet. You weren't winning people to the kingdom. But in actuality, if we know what evangelism is and the gospel and all of that, I want you to take a look at Genesis chapter 12 for next week as well. I'll be drawing attention to that. Okay, if I started this way with these words, we hold, could anybody finish that phrase? Oh my gosh, look at you. You're like robots. That's awesome. You must have had incredible government teachers. Right. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created. All right. Well, look, and I think I've used this in a sermon before. We know this phrase, that all men are created equal. Well, here's the question that you can always pose. Is that a true statement? Now, right now, half of you are thinking, well, yeah, it's a true statement. Because the way that you're thinking of equality, it would be a true statement. And then there's another half of you that are thinking ways in which we are not all equal. Okay? And so you would understand that, obviously, that statement isn't true. In many ways, I could demonstrate to you how we are not all created equal. I could point you towards my wedding picture. If you look at my wedding pictures, what you would see, if this is the picture here, on the left side of the picture, you would see the Heck family. And we are all normal human beings, normal height that culminates with me, the perfect male height. That's what you would see. It would lead up to me. Then on the other side, you got a bunch of freaks. Okay, you've got Steve, who's like eight feet tall, and Ann, who's seven four, and then the two children that are six feet or whatever, and then you get up to Jenny, who's about normal height for a woman. But you're going to look at that and say, okay, people are not all created equal, right? Certainly when it comes to physical appearance, we're not all created equal. Also with talents and abilities. Some of you have been privileged to see me on the basketball floor. And you know that not everybody can do what I do. So obviously people are born, sure I've honed those skills, but you have to be born with certain talents and abilities. We're not all equal in that regard. And it's not just those things, opportunities and privileges. Not everybody is born into the United States. Not everybody's born with the freedom that we have. Not everybody is born into an upper middle class socioeconomic status. So certainly some of us are born with opportunities and privileges that other people in other places of the world or even other places of our state or our county, they don't have those privileges. So there's ways that we're not equal. But we could also at the same time list off ways that we are equal and that's one of, one of those is what I want to focus on now. It all comes down to this number right here, 168. It's a perfect demonstration of how every single one of us, no matter where you are in the world, completely equal. Anybody know what 168 is? Anyone want to hazard a guess? Holy cow. You guys are on it this morning. We hold these truths. Yeah, I was going to have to show you the formula, and I thought it would then tip you off. 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 168 hours in a week. And every single person has that. 
It doesn't matter where you're born. It doesn't matter what your culture is. It doesn't matter how much money you make or don't make. Every single one of us is equal in that we have 168 hours in every week that we're given. You cannot save up more hours. You can't say, well, I'm going to need more hours in a few weeks, so I'm going to save up the ones this week, and I'll use them then. You can't generate more. You can't say, I just, I, 24 is not going to do it today. I'm going to need to generate a few more hours for me. It's not possible. Now, what we do with those hours, that's anything but equal. In fact, this is the kind of the point that we're driving at today. As believers, we're called to use that 168 or that 24 hours. <clears throat> we're called to use it in a way that completely separates us from the world. Completely different in this regard. The world will chase after things and spend their time doing things. And when you look at a believer, we're not to be doing those things. We're not to appear equal to them in that regard. In Ephesians, Paul writes these words, chapter 5. Be very careful then how you live, not as unwise, but as wise. This is the NIV. Making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. Therefore, don't be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. Can, I highlighted that phrase, making the most of every opportunity. Because I will tell you that that phrase right there is a nightmare for many of us. Maybe not all of us, but for many of us, that phrase is a nightmare. And why? Because we equate every opportunity then with an obligation. We feel like whenever there's an opportunity presented to us, well, I'm supposed to make the most out of every opportunity. So every time something pops up, well, I have the opportunity to serve on the blood drive. I'm not really into blood. I pass out every time I see it, but it's an opportunity and I don't want to pass on what the Lord has presented me. Therefore, I must participate in this. And so when we see this phrase, I got to make the most out of every opportunity, what does it lead us into? Many of us, it leads us into this gerbil wheel. You know the gerbil wheel, where you are constantly doing things, constantly at work, exhausting busyness, and yes, that is how you spell that, because if it's an I, which some of you are sitting there thinking, that would be business, all right? That's how you spell busyness. Exhausting bu busyness, but a very minimal value. We're not really accomplishing it. You've, you've seen gerbil wheels. The gerbil can go crazy and exhaust himself, but he's not making any progress, and that's how many of us live. So let me ask you if this is you. I'm going to pose 12 questions. I do not want you to answer these verbally, but I want you to keep track in your head how many times you say the word yes. Okay, keep track of the number. There's 12 questions. How many times is your answer yes to these questions? Do you work at least 30 minutes over your contracted hours every day? Now, some of you right now are stay-at-home moms or stay-at-home dads, and you're cackling at that right there. Contracted hours. It's 24, man. All right, so your answer to this would be yes. Okay, let's just put that out there. But the rest of you, 30, 30 minutes over your contracted hours. Is that you? Secondly, do you check your work emails and messages at home? Now, some of you have retired, so you can think uh, this isn't necessarily going to be, you can go back to when you were at work, whatever it is. Do you check those when you are at home? Or are you one of those people that you get done at the end of the workday and you leave it there? I'll, the emails will be there when I get there in the morning. I'll check them then. Is that you or are you one that checks those at home? Do you feel tired during the day? Everybody gets a yes. Let's just move on. Number four, do you ever hear people say to you, well, I hate to ask because I know how busy you are. Is that something that people say to you whenever they address you or they ask you something? 
Do your family and friends complain about not getting more time with you? I read an illustration this week. It almost made me cry. Not because it's a real story, but it could be. And I worry that maybe, what if this was my son? story about a dad that, that uh, his son approaches him, his little boy, asks him what he makes every hour, what, what's his hourly rate. And the dad says, well, that's a weird question, but I make $22.50 an hour. The son says, wow, that's a lot of money. And then he shows up a, a couple days later having saved his money, and he has $22.50. He says, dad, could I buy an hour of your time? This is killing me. I can't even tell you the story right there because but is that you where your friends or your family complain they're not getting to see you enough do you feel like you never have a moment to yourself is that you you feel like I just never have a moment to myself do you regularly drive over the speed limit because you are rushing from place to place I got to get there and I got to get there and I got to get there and uh, some of you better not say no to that because I've seen you on the open road if your last name is Evenson do not say no to that question the Phil Evenson School of Offensive Driving, okay? That's what it is if you've ever ridden in a car with that man. Number eight, do you work when you're on vacation? Do you work when you're on, do you do some form of work? Are you un unable to pray with your family on a regular basis? You're not around. You're busy. You don't have time. You're not there when the kids go to bed. And again, I know some of you now are past the age of having kids, so you have to kind of manipulate these questions a little bit for them to apply. Do you fail to pray yourself regularly? You're so busy and you're so tired, you fall asleep before you ever get a prayer said. Are you too busy to have a hobby that you can find some sort of consistency in engaging with that hobby? And number 12, does your schedule interrupt family time at least once a day? Okay, now this is the participation point. If you said yes six or more times, over half the time to those questions, raise your hand right now. All right, look around. That's what I'm talking about. You know what that says to me? Here's what it says to me. First of all, it says a lot of you are more like me than you care to admit. These questions reveal something about us. Many of us live this way. We wake up in the morning, and we have 15 boxes that we want to check off. And at the end of the day, if we have checked off all of those boxes, we feel this sense of accomplishment that we have done something. And what is our reward? That we can go to bed for six hours or seven, and we wake up the next day with another checklist of 15 things that we need to do. And that's how we live. That's how you and I exist. Many of us, and that is not what the Apostle Paul is telling us as believers. That's not how we are to live. That's not what he means when he says make the most of every opportunity or in, in the translation that's the King James, redeem your time. That's not what he means. We desperately, especially here in this culture, need to begin acting like Jesus in this way, in how we deal with our time. Mark chapter 1, when I did a whole series, this has been a couple of years ago on time, I shared this story with you because it's alarming. It is, well, at least it's alarming to me. If you weren't here with us at that point in time, and even if you have, you've slept since then, a few hours, I want you to look at this passage. I want to remind us how Jesus acted with regard to time. Mark chapter 1, very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, he left the house, and went off to a solitary place where he prayed. Simon Peter and his companions went to look for him. And when they found him, they exclaimed, everyone is looking for you. All right, so let me explain the backstory. Jesus has been in the town. He's been preaching. He's teaching. And now he's healing. All of the sick people are there. All of the people that are needing Jesus' touch are there. And he's taking care of them. Well, he doesn't get through everybody in a day. So everybody goes home or sleeps right there. And during the night while they're sleeping, waiting for the next day of Jesus' healing and teaching and all of that, Jesus slips away. 
He goes to a solitary place. So everybody wakes up the next morning, time to resume the healing time with Jesus, and Jesus isn't there. So they say to the disciples, where did Jesus go? And the disciples say, I haven't seen him. Have you seen him? We haven't seen him. And so they go out looking for Jesus. And when they find him, look at what they say. Dude, where are you? Everybody's looking for you. You left off on number 42, and we've got 400 more people behind that. Let's get to it, Jesus. You've got a lot of healing to do today. You've got a lot of teaching. And how does Jesus respond to that? Look at how Jesus responds. Jesus replies, let us go somewhere else. Let us go somewhere else to, to a nearby village. Let's go over there instead so that I can preach there also. That is why I have come. And what I said was really alarming two years ago about this is it hits you if you're paying attention the reality that Jesus left people waiting to be healed. There were people in that town that were waiting in line to be healed by Jesus and when they woke up Jesus was gone and when Jesus was told you got all these people back here that are still waiting for you, he says no, let's go over here to this village because I need to preach and look at that line because that is why I have come. Now he has an opportunity to do all of this over here, but he's saying, no, that is why I have come. Are you picking up on something that Jesus is teaching us about our time? Jesus left towns that had hurting people that were looking for him. He got tired and he hid from needy people. He never interacted with the vast majority of the suffering people that were there while he was here on earth. I don't know if it's dawned on you. He did not heal everyone that needed healing. And yet, what do we know? We know that Jesus accomplished everything that God had sent him to do. So we know two things. Number one, Jesus did not heal everybody that had come looking for his healing. And we know that Jesus did everything that God had set aside for him to do and for him to accomplish. Go to that passage now that we read for this week, Colossians chapter 3, okay? Colossians chapter 3, and the whole passage applies to this, but specifically look at verse 17. And whatever you do, whether in word or in deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Whatever you do, you're doing in the name of Jesus. Whatever we do, we do those things for God's glory, that's why we do, as believers, the things that we do. But notice something. Whatever you do, it's very important to note we do not do all things. It is impossible for us to do all things. Some of you need to realize that because you try to do all things. You interpret Ephesians 5, 16 to mean I need to do everything that is presented to me. You are not living like Jesus if that is your approach. Whatever it is that you do, you won't do everything, but the things that you do, you should do to the glory of God the Father. Some Christians will work in schools. Those of us who work in schools need to do that to bring glory to the Father. Some of you will never step into a school. Okay? Some Christians are going to counsel others psychologically and help them through difficult circumstances. Those of you that do that should do that to the glory of the Father. But not every Christian is going to do that. Some Christians are going to serve overseas. They're going to go serve on a mission field in a foreign land. And you should do that to the glory of God the Father. But not everybody will do that. Some of you will never leave our shores. Some Christians will operate a nursing care facility, right? And they should do that 
to the glory of God the Father. Others of you, even though there are openings at Century Villa all the time, you're never going to go there and you're never going to serve there. Whatever it is that you do, you as a Christian, as a believer, you do to the glory of God. That's exactly where we were last week when we were talking about spiritual gifts. I don't know if you pick up on this. This isn't because I'm a genius, but it seems like every week the message that the Holy Spirit has ties in with exactly where we were the week before. It's freaky to me how that happens. It's kind of awesome, but it's also a little freaky. And this is right where we were. For just as one body has many members and these members don't have the same functions, fingers and toes and arms and legs and all of that, in Christ we are one body, but we all have different functions. We have different gifts according to what? The grace that God gives us. He gives us grace to use gifts to build up the body of Christ. This is the genius of God and it's the genius of his church to reach the world. God has given us different passions, different perspectives, different ideas, different approaches, and we've learned that in various circumstances he will gift us in different ways to accomplish what? The building of his kingdom, bringing him glory, that is the power of the church. Or, go back a week before, that is the power of our fellowship. It's exactly how it all ties together. Jesus' work must be done in the world and you can't do it alone. You can try, but you're not going to do it alone. But you know who can? His church can. His body functioning the way that he's designed it can accomplish his will if... We stay on mission. And that phrase right there, us staying on mission when it comes to our time, that is acting like Jesus. Go back to that passage in Mark 1 that I just talked about. Why did he leave that village? It's not that he didn't care about those people. He left that village to stay on mission. What did he say? I'm going there to preach because that is why I have come. He knew why the Father had sent him. Come to teach and to preach and to draw all men unto him to bring salvation at the cross. That is why he had been sent. In other words, Jesus knew the difference between the good things that he could do and the things he had been sent to do. Do you know the difference there between the good things that you can do and the things that God is calling you to do? He knew the difference between his opportunities and his purpose. Do we know the difference between our opportunities and our purpose? He stayed on mission. You want to redeem the time? That's how you do it, right there. He's taught us to do the exact same. That's why he says in Matthew 6, you, not like the world, the world's going to seek after things for themselves. They're going to build up treasures on earth and all of that stuff. But you seek first the kingdom of God. Your time, your efforts, build the kingdom of God. Strive for his righteousness and then everything else, all that other stuff that the world cares about, that will be added to you as well. But your focus, your mission is the kingdom of God and building it up. Prioritize kingdom work in your life. There's our answer right there. If you want to know how is it that I make the most of every opportunity, or, or look at it in the King James Version, it's the way I titled this sermon, walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time, because the days are evil. That's what I called the message, redeeming the time. What does it mean to redeem the time? Uh, the easiest way to understand this is to think of money. I think that's a perfect parallel, right? Because all of us understand this about money. We may not like it, and we may struggle with this, but we don't buy everything we see. We don't buy everything that we want. 
Okay, some of you come close, but you don't buy everything that you see and you don't buy everything that you want. And why? Because you know that your money is fine. It's limited. Now, some of you in here, there's a greater limitation on your money than other people, but everyone has a limit to what they have in their bank account. There's a limit. Our time is even more restricted than our money. We've already addressed this. You cannot save up time. Even a poor person can save money so that they can take that family vacation. It may take them five years, but they can save up money. You can't save up time. And you can't generate more time. You can generate more money. You can take another job. You can, you can sell something of yours. You can find ways to generate money. You cannot generate time. So time is even more restricted than what money is. And you'll only redeem that time the way Scripture talks about, the way Jesus teaches us, when we realize there is not an infinite supply of that time. I need to divide up that which I have carefully. That's what Jesus is modeling for us in the book of Mark. If Jesus had waited until he had healed every single person, if he'd gone back that day and healed everybody in that town and then moved on to the next, if he had done that, if he'd stayed until the entire town had heard him speak and got it and understood, he would have never completed the work that Jesus called him to complete. That's the reality. That's why Jesus left the town. I have a mission I have been sent to do something. I need to accomplish it. So take that lesson of Jesus, if we're wanting to be like Jesus, and personalize it. What is the message for us? If you respond to every email that is sent to you, requesting something of you, if you attend every possible meeting that is presented to you, well, we'd like for you to be part of this. We think that your insights would be beneficial here. If you do that, and if you volunteer for every single service project that pops up in front of you, if you give a response to every issue, well, we've got this problem with racial injustice and people seem to be responding. I need to address it. Well, we've got this problem with abortion and that's certainly in the news right now. I feel like I need to make a post about it on Facebook so everybody knows where I stand. If you do that, and then when the responses come, and you engage those responses. If you do all of these things, if you meet with every person who says, I need just a few minutes of your time, I'm not going to tell you what about, but I need just a few minutes of your time. If we do that, it is unlikely that we will stay on mission. We'll be bogged down with other things. I'm not teaching you to be rude. I'm not teaching you to be dismissive. This isn't about being selfish with your time. It's about prioritizing opportunities to build the kingdom of God. That's where our time needs to be spent. It's about focusing intently on one mission, using the gifts that God is giving me and the abilities he has already given me to accomplish his will. Um, I think it was Tony Evans I heard tell this story. Some of you uh, are into baseball. You remember the era of Yogi Berra and Hank Aaron? Yogi Berra was a catcher, okay? And Hank Aaron comes up to the plate. It's a great story. Yogi Berra, of course, is the master trash talker. Long before Michael Jordan took over that role, Yogi Berra could sit there and trash talk people like nobody. And when you're the catcher, you're behind the plate, every batter comes up, and you can just jaw at him. And Yogi Berra had that reputation of doing that. So Hank Aaron, this great home run hitter, comes up to the bat, and Yogi is just ripping into him saying all kinds of stuff, trying desperately to get a response from him. And at one point, after he's engaged him a number of times and Hank Aaron won't turn around, he says, hey, Hank, your bat's turned around backwards. I can read the letters on your bat there. You better turn that around. It's not supposed to be turned that way. Very next pitch, Hank Aaron, who doesn't even look at Yogi Berra, cranks one direct dead center over the fence. He, he, he circles the bags, comes around, and as he's picking up his bat, he just glances back at Yogi Berra and says, hey, Yogi, I didn't come here to chat and then walks off. First of all, I love Hank Aaron. But what's his point in saying that? 
I'm not here to engage you in conversation. I have a mission. And my focus is that ball that's coming right at me, and my intent is to put it over the fence. I'm accomplishing that, not jawing with you behind the plate. You can sit there and waste all day talking. That's not what I'm here to do. Christians, do we have that kind of focus? As the world's nagging at us and nipping at us and trying to get our attention and trying to distract us, you don't think Satan's going to do that, then you don't know Satan. Are you focused intently on knocking that ball out of the park, whatever it is? Maybe it's cultivating a relationship of someone who's lost. I don't know what it is, but do you have that kind of focus where you can knock it out of the park, walk around the bags, look at Satan and say, I'm not here to talk, buddy, and then walk back to the dugout? Is that our approach? Now, what happens if we don't do that? If we don't have that focus? Well, Jesus warned us about that as well. I know this wasn't your reading, but flip real quick to Mark chapter 4. There's a parable there that I know you'll remember. I've shared it with you before, but I want to look at it again. It's the parable of the sower, the seeds. This is a great depiction of what happens if we are not redeeming our time. I'm not going to read the whole thing. I'm going to skip around a little bit, but pick it up here in verse 1. On another occasion, Jesus began to teach by the lake. I'm in Mark chapter 4. Just catch up when you find it. The crowd that gathered around him was so large that he got into a boat and set, it out, set out on the lake while all the people were along the shore at the water's edge. He taught them many things by parables and in his teaching said, listen, a farmer went out to sow his seed. As he was scattering the seeds, some fell along the path and the birds came and ate it up. Some fell on rocky places where it did not have much soil. It sprang up quickly, but the soil was shallow. And when the sun comes up, the plants were scorched and they withered because they had no root. Other seed fell among some thorns, which grew up and choked the plants so that they did not bear grain. Still other seed fell on good soil. It came up, grew, and produced a crop, multiplying 30, 60, or even 100 times. Skip down to verse 13. Then Jesus said to them, do you understand this parable? How then will you understand any parable? The farmer sows the word. That, that's what the seed is. It's the word of God. Some people are like the seed along the path where the word is sown. As soon as they hear it, Satan comes and takes away that word that was sown in them. Others, like the seed sown on rocky places, hear the word and at once receive it with joy. But since they have no root, they last only a short time. When trouble or persecution comes because of the word, they quickly fall away. Still others, like seeds sown among thorns, hear the word. But the worries of this life, the deceitfulness of wealth, and the desires for other things come in and choke the word, making it unfruitful. Others, like seeds sown on good soil, hear the word, accept it, and produce a crop 30, 60, or even 100 times that was sown. All right, we obviously want to be the good soil. We want to be producing that crop. I want you to look at the procession of, the, of this seed that is sown. First of all, the first seed, the word does nothing. The birds come and snatch it away. I don't think that's us. You're here. So I don't think number one is a real threat to us in this gathering, in this fellowship. Number two, the word grows really fast in us. We're really fired up and then it fades and we kind of lose our interest and we walk away. Okay, maybe that's going to be some of you because this is your first time or maybe you're interested. But for the majority of us, that isn't a threat to us. These first two aren't our problem. You know what our problem could be? It could be number three. It's this seed right here where the word sinks in and it sprouts. It's why we're here. It's why we keep coming. And it almost produces fruit. But then what happens? Then the thorns show up and they choke it out of us. That, to me, is the teaching of this parable about our time that you and I as believers need to pay very close attention to. 
We need to be on guard against the thorns that will choke the word from us, that will choke out our, our focus on mission. And if you notice, Jesus tells us directly, in case we didn't understand what those thorns are, what are the thorns that are going to strangle the word? Well, look back. What does he say the thorns are? Look in verse 19. He says exactly what it is. But the worries of life, the worries of life, that's a thorn that can choke the word right out of you. Tobias Brockus has been attending here for quite some time, and he has been at me for a couple years now to attend. Uh, some of you have gone to these, and they call them different things in different denominations. Like in our brotherhood of churches, they call them the discipleship walk. Jenny went on one of those. Uh, some churches call it the Emmaus walk. Other people call it the great banquet. All of these things. And Tobias has been on me about it. He hasn't harassed me. I, no, he hasn't harassed me, but he's been on me about going to one of these. Why is he doing that? He's not doing that because he's going to make a profit off of it. He's not doing it because it's for his own benefit, but he understands exactly what this parable is teaching. Jesus is warning us, what is it? Because what do you do at those banquets? What do you do on those retreats? You are completely isolated from the world. I, did I mention Jenny went to one of these? It was the greatest spiritual event, I think, of her life. It had profound impacts on her. I noticed it when she got back. And why? Because isolated from the worries of this life, concentrating solely on the Father. And that's what Tobias realizes would be really good for me because the worries of this life, Jesus has warned, that's a thorn that can choke what you know is good right out of you. You know, the greatest threat to our faith, believers, is not the heresy of atheists. Jesus isn't saying, well, I'm pretty worried that you're going to go online and see something that some atheist has said and be like, well, you know what? That makes a lot of sense. I think I may go down that path. Now, maybe there's somebody that that's going to happen to, but that isn't the majority of the problem. It's this right here. It's the worries of life. It's me knowing what I am called to, and then what happens? Well, what happens is this. I'm behind on the dishes. We got to get those dishes. They're stacked up. I've never seen dishes like this. Maybe we should just throw them all away and go buy all new dishes. At this point, that might be the smartest thing to do. I got the annual report that I got to finish, and we got to finish those wedding plans and the groceries. We have no groceries. We have wheat thins. That's all we're going to have for supper. And college applications, they're not going to finish themselves. And that fence, it's barbed wire. It's going to tear up one of the neighborhood kids, and we're going to have a lawsuit on our hands. And you got to mow the yard. It's like a jungle out there and the new floor, and we can't walk around on these, these boards and the laundry piles they just keep multiplying there's more laundry than I've ever seen and I got to take care of mom she's getting older uh, she doesn't understand things anymore and the pool cleaning the algae is taking over the pool and that leaky faucet if it keeps me up one more night I don't know what I'm going to do and by the way I got into it with Bob on Facebook I really need to go handle that situation and I've got to pick up those Legos I stepped on one last night and it was like a grenade I got to return the calls we got a vacuum if you've seen the corner of the house we got a whole new civilization that's growing over there in the side of the house. We got to clean up. That right there is what will strangle my faith. That right there. Why? Because I'm off mission. That's what Satan wants. I know my mission. I'm staring down the pitcher. I need to be hitting it over. But all of this stuff are Yogi Berra's all around me and they're yelling at me and I turn to give my attention to this and all of a sudden, I'm not where the Father wants me to be. The worries of this life are choking out our spiritual life. That's the danger when it comes to redeeming your time. The second thorn that Jesus, Jesus identifies, did you see it? Look beyond the worries of life. What does he say? The deceitfulness of wealth and the desires for other things. That's the second thorn. The deceitfulness of wealth, that this is what you want. 
This is what's going to make you happy. Those desires. In other words, it's not the possessions themselves that are bad. It's us working to care for those possessions. Us desperately wanting more of those possessions. Do you know who the most stressed out people are? If you look at sociological study after sociological, you tell me. Two groups. The affluent, wealthy, or the poor. Uh, those living beneath the poverty line. Which of those two groups has a higher suicide rate? I'll give you a hint, it's not even close. Which of those two groups? Is it the people that you would think, I don't have anything to live for? No, it's the people that have all the stuff. It's not even remotely close. The most affluent have a much higher suicide rate. And why? Well, this is the point that's being made. We got the lake house and the boats and the smartphones and the additions on the home and the vacations and the timeshares and our iPads and cars and real estate, the new snowmobile, the computers and the campers, all of this stuff that once we have it, what do we have to do? The biggest problem with money oftentimes is what happens after the money has been spent. Because once you have all of those goods, it's the deceitfulness of wealth. That's going to make you happy. But once you have that stuff, you have to clean it, you have to keep it working, you have to improve it, you have to get more of it because Bob and Judy over there, they got a new boat, we need to upgrade our boat, and the new iPhone 86 has come out, I really need to be on the cutting edge there. All of those things, the upkeep of life, it leads to the worries of life, and that becomes our obsession. Isn't it amazing that with as serious as persecution is, that isn't the greatest threat that isn't the greatest threat to our faith. Jesus is teaching, it's not the persecution that's going to drive you from the faith. It's the exhaustion of the worries and the obsessions of life. That's where the problem is. I know that seems weird, because if you ask me, which one is a greater threat? Somebody putting a gun to your head and saying, you renounce Jesus or I'm going to shoot you right here? Or all of the stuff that I have to do in my day? Which is a greater threat to my faith? I would think the guy with the gun. But think this through. I want you to honestly think about this. People across the world who are facing persecution gather together regardless. Bullets do not stop them from gathering. But here in America, we got a family get-together this afternoon. i got to get the ham salad ready. I'm not going to be able to go to church. You get this, right? Bullets don't stop people from gathering. But the ham salad sandwiches we have to make do. What is Jesus teaching? It's the worries of life. Bullets don't keep believers from gathering. But we got a softball tournament this weekend. we got to get to the softball tournament. Bullets don't stop. But travel softball keeps us from gathering. Bullets don't keep believers from gathering to worship Jesus. But i got Colts tickets. we got to get down for the, for the, the, the tailgate. we got to make it down for that. we just got to miss the gathering this week. That's what I'm getting at. It's all the stuff in life, the deceitfulness of wealth. This brings you happiness. It takes us off mission. You want to redeem the time. Jesus is teaching us something. Being busy does not equal being faithful or being fruitful for the kingdom of God. Being busy, what does it often entail? Distraction and misplaced desire. Be on guard against that, Christians, because we can do what the world does. Chase after things that are of no ultimate value as our limited time grows shorter and shorter and shorter. We don't know how much time we've got. I don't mean to alarm anyone, but it's been a couple years now. I said the name of a young lady as she walked across the stage at Eastern High School and got her diploma, and the very next week, I was attending her funeral. She had died in a car accident. You don't know how much time you have. 
How are you spending the time that you've been given? That's exactly why I had you read Psalm 39. Let's close it off right there. Flip to Psalm 39 and look at verses 4 through 7. Show me, O Lord, my life's end and the number of my days. Let me know how fleeting is my life. You have made my days a mere handbreadth, the width of a hand. That's it. The span of my years is as nothing before you. Each man's life is but a breath. Man is a mere phantom as he goes to and fro. He bustles about, but only in vain. He heaps up wealth, not knowing who will get it, because we don't keep it. But now, Lord, what do I look for? My hope is in you. That, friends, you want to redeem the time. You want to act like Jesus. Make that the prayer of your heart. Stay on mission. Father, I thank you for the time that you have given us. I thank you that we still have breath in our lungs, which means we still have an opportunity to build your kingdom. May that be our desire. May that be our focus. May that be our passion. And may it become our obsession to spend each day focused on building the kingdom, your kingdom, here on earth. That is the prayer of our heart, and we ask it in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. If you want to make that decision to join our fellowship in building the kingdom, this is your chance to come forward, surrender to the cross, surrender to Jesus, be baptized into him. Maybe it's to rededicate your life. Maybe you just need prayer. David's in room eight. You can step back there. Whatever it is that you're dealing with, now's the time to respond. If the Holy Spirit's speaking and moving, don't turn away. Would you come as we stand and as we sing?